Hello, everybody, and welcome to the You Should Run podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, Council Vice President in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. If you've listened to this podcast, and I hope you have, you know I've talked to people from across the country, from Florida to Alaska, Hawaii to Maine, all kind of elections in between, from borough council like myself and school board, all the way up to U.S. Senate. And I love to talk to people about interesting stories, but in addition to my love of politics, I have been and remain a wrestling fan since 1991-ish, uh, since the days of Hulkamania before he you know, became not as great in a lot of ways. Uh, and so I also, uh, my, mother, my mother-in-law, my wife's family is from this great state of Rhode Island, so I'm really excited to talk today to my first wrestler uh, legislator and who has a lot to offer, and he's probably going to make a lot of people's um, moms feel jealous of his hard work and determination of what he's accomplished in his young life. His name is State Representative David Morales. He's got a lot to say today. So, David, thanks for talking. Absolutely, Tony. Cannot thank you enough for the invitation. I'm excited to have the conversation. Yeah. So, I was uh, reading up on you. You are you're still 24 years old, right? That is correct. Over the course of this next week, I will continue to be 24. So, by the time this comes up, maybe you'll be 25 because we're recording a few days before we upload it. Um, and so with all that, I know you have an interesting story about watching your mother um, and, and how she grew up and growing up with her. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you noticed government being important in your family's life and how that kind of influenced you taking a stand to be involved in politics? Of course. So initially growing up, I did not always make the connection in terms of the way that the government had an influence on my upbringing and my mom's standard of living. And it really wasn't until my junior and senior year of high school that I started making the connections between the fact that I grew up on SNAP. Mm -hmm. I am a Medicaid recipient. That was the only way I was able to see a primary care physician. And beyond that, I literally lived in a public housing unit. But a lot of that just went over my head, and I never really made the connection. And it really wasn't until I started learning about U.S. government in class that I realized that all of these social benefit programs were essentially providing my mom, my sister, and myself with the services that we had access to between healthcare, food, and the ability for us to have a roof over our head. And so it was at that moment when it all clicked, really during that senior year of high school, that I realized I want to make it my life's mission and goal to support families like mine to ensure that we're never in a position where there are threats to cutting food stamps, to cutting Medicaid, and other social benefit programs that clearly work. Because again, my mom was able to still struggle and work a multitude of jobs and still be able to provide for my sister and I growing up. So hence why, again, I have a strong passion for protecting and most importantly, expanding those social benefit programs. And more than anything else, it was that upbringing that ultimately influenced my own engagement and involvement within social and policy advocacy. Yeah, I talk to people of various ages on this podcast, and thankfully a lot of people who are younger than me who've run, which I think is very important, especially these days where we have, there's nothing wrong with being in your 80s and being in government or 70s or 20s, but um, you know, you need those fresh perspectives about the, the issues of the day. But you're growing up around the time that Barack Obama's elected and that they passed the ACA. Um, I you, you were too young to know what that impact was legislation at the time because you were like 10 or 11 or 12. But now looking back on it, how important was something like that to families like yours 
to have legislation passed like the Affordable Care Act back in 2010. Oh, so important. I mean, I'll give you a more localized example. When California started adopting Medicaid expansion specifically for undocumented children, mm-hmm. uh, their Cover yeah. Our Kids initiative made such a grand investment and difference in like the lives of my own friends. Because I remember growing up, there were cases where I had friends who couldn't get their physicals done in order to participate in sports because they weren't documented. They were undocumented young people who did not have access to a primary care physician unless our local clinic provided free healthcare screenings. But the moment that Medicaid expansion passed, it made a difference. So being able to see that like legislation firsthand and the difference it makes, that's again what further inclined me to realize like, wow, the government can make such a critical difference in a positive way on the day-to-day lives of working people and those who feel vulnerable and oftentimes without a voice. And that's exactly what the Affordable Care Act did at a national scale. Now, you were um, you, you grew up in California, and then you went to Brown, which is not far from where um, – well, it's Rhode Island, so everything's not too far from each other. But it's not far from where my, uh, <laughs> my, mother, my in-laws family lives. A beautiful campus, but you were really at college during the Trump administration, the, the, the beginning parts of it and, and whatnot. Um, and obviously he, his rise was kind of fueled by anti-immigrant fervor uh, in different communities. And thankfully, Rhode Island and California are two states that rejected that. But like, what was your perspective seeing that? Did that color and you know impact your approach and your decision to be involved in politics, knowing the kind of attacks that he was giving to that community? Absolutely. I would argue it further, quote unquote, radicalized me, mm-hmm. right? To hear such scary rhetoric and fear mongering talking points being made against people of color, being made against immigrants. Again, that just further empowered me to push for policies and to push for ideas that would further benefit those communities that are being marginalized and being under attack by the federal government. And you combine that with the disastrous economic policies he was putting forward as well with the Trump administration successfully cutting taxes for some of the wealthiest Americans and businesses. It was, it was a scary time. But again, I think that further fueled and motivated myself and my peers to organize locally and see what we can be able to accomplish on the ground understanding that our advocacy was limited within the realms of Washington, D.C. So, yeah, I'll be blunt. It's a, it's a an audio podcast, but people who know me, obviously, I'm a straight white male age 18 to 45. Like, Donald Trump's policies are not directed to hurt me versus other groups, right? But um, so, but I do take it kind of personally in a way, knowing that who is impacted. It's a very personal issue, um, you know, even in my own family, but you know, when I go to see people, they're not thinking about me when they're voting for him. They're not like against people like me. But you go to legislature now. You've worked with people of both parties, and so you know people who embraced his style of politics and his rhetoric. Does that impact your way of having those relationships? And you know, are you able to be? How are you able to be effective when you know people associate with that kind of stuff? Yeah. So thankfully, we don't have too many quote unquote Trump Republicans within the realms of Rhode Island. Um, in my experience organizing, I haven't really been in too many situations where people drank the quote-unquote Kool-Aid coming from Trump's rhetoric, which, again, I feel very grateful for. In terms of like being able to organize and engage with people who don't always see eye-to-eye in terms of, again, whether we're talking more conservative Democrats or in the case of Republicans, my strategy has always been to find common overlap mm-hmm. in terms of the issues we'll agree on. 
Uh, one perfect example from this recent legislative session was myself and the minority leader of the Republican Party working together to lower prescription drug costs. Because at the end of the day, I said, I know you don't subscribe to the same philosophy as national Republicans that receive donations from Big Pharma. Mm -hmm. You actually believe that the people in your rural community deserve access to medication that they need to live. And so we partnered on that legislation. We were able to push it forward. It was a bipartisan piece of legislation. And again, it was those common overlaps that we're trying to determine. Because affordable housing, to me, in terms of how we get there, looks different to some of my Republican counterparts, even though we share that same goal. So the idea is how can we merge those efforts, find that overlap, and still put forward legislation that's predominantly going to benefit working people and poor people. Yeah, I've heard the same thing from Democrats in Montana even, where the, the split is very different, of course. They're in the minority, but they have found issues like housing to be something that they can cross the aisle on um, because it's you know people can see that direct impact. You know, you, you have your own personal story about what motivated you to get into politics, but as a legislator, what kind of things do you want to pass that you feel you can be effective? Like, if you look at the at the end of the year, like if I can get these two or three things done or stopped, you know, then I'll consider it a success. Definitely Medicaid expansion, mm -hmm. uh, specifically looking at increasing rates for our providers, because more often than not, we have so many people in our community who are underinsured. Mm -hmm. Right? They'll go to the doctor. But unfortunately, there's not a provider who's going to see them because the reimbursement rates from our Medicaid system are so low because they haven't been updated in decades at times. So for me, it's always been a priority to further invest in our Medicaid program, specifically because I myself grew up on that Medicaid program. And at the same time, get to a place where the state of Rhode Island is working towards a $20 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. We spoke earlier about the need to have younger people in office. I think one of the main reasons for that is because we are currently fish facing contemporary issues related to skyrocketing rents, mm -hmm. the cost of living between groceries, between utilities, yet and still wages remain stagnant. And the only way we'll be able to address that is by directly raising wages. Because this entire rhetoric that, oh, anytime you raise wages, everything goes up in cost, has already been debunked. Because over the years, we haven't seen an increase in wages, but yet and still, we see a rising cost of living. So I would definitely say getting on that pathway to a $20 minimum wage and then adjusting for inflation thereafter is a sustainable pathway that we need to ensure that all people, regardless of occupation or education level, have the means to live. Yeah, I was also thinking this week as it's the week of 9-11 and also uh, – you know, looking at how young people view politics, and there's like this meme or discussion online of uh, why are young people such as you say doomers or look on the dark side of things, and and then someone said, well, you know, we grew up with a terrorist attack when we were babies, and then there was a financial collapse, there was a war in Iraq, there was the rise of Trump, there was a pandemic, so lots of things can really make people cynical at a young age if this is what they're living with forever, uh, but. You know, I'm, I'm not – sometimes I think there's, like, reason for younger people to be hopeful, but it doesn't feel like there's the same, like, Bill Clinton in the 90s. Like, whether you liked him or not, like, his message was somewhat hopeful. Ronald Reagan's message in the 80s was hopeful. What can you do as a younger elected official to kind of give hope to that generation? Like, we can make things better. Like, do you have a way of inspiring that? Engagement. Engagement across all levels in terms of actually speaking – to young people and letting them know the impact that 
local government can have on their day-to-day lives and be able to provide that hope by pointing out initiatives such as what we did this year in the state house, which was finally ban rental application fees. So starting in 2024, when someone applies for an apartment, they don't have to pay what has often become the new the nuance of an application fee, which ranges from 50 to $70. But my point is like being able to demonstrate to young people that there in fact is an impact that local government can make because more often than not, people group the idea of politics and government with what happens at the federal level, mm-hmm. which is what made that election in 2016 of Donald Trump so dangerous is it essentially became a vacuum where everyone became convinced that politics is just what you see on Fox News or CNN or MS- MSNBC in terms of congressmen yelling or grandstanding and not getting anything done. And D.C. is notorious for that. But again, it has come at the expense of having young people feel convinced that government is not capable of making meaningful change, which is why it's so important that we demonstrate that between the walls of City Hall or the State House, there in fact could be positive investments made to our communities that will actually benefit us. So speaking of grandstanding, you are in professional wrestling. And I, like I said at the beginning, I asked like, how you started getting involved and noticing why government was important and run for office. What, when did you become a wrestling fan? Was it for, like from life, when, from a young age in California? Was it because of something else in particular? Did, did something kind of, do you remember like at a certain age watching something that got you hooked on it? Because I think that wrestling is something you get hooked on. Absolutely. No, I remember my first exposure to professional wrestling was at the age of eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, my two older cousins, who I often regard as being my older brothers, uh, were big wrestling fans. Uh, they were big fans of The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels in specific. And so they sat me down and watched an episode of Monday Night Raw. And I remember there was a character that went by the name of Hollywood Rock. Uh, uh-huh. This was between 2003 and 2004 when he was running with that gimmick. Mm-hmm. And I remember just the charisma just popping out of the screen. And then a few months later... I remember scrolling through the channels and tuning into Friday Night Smackdown. And Rey Mysterio was that larger-than-life character to me where I started watching professional wrestling religiously on a weekly basis. Rey Mysterio spoke Spanish. Rey Mysterio looked like Spider-Man to me. Mm -hmm. He had all the characteristics of that theatrics and the athleticism that I wanted to feel entertained by. And so that's really what my start to professional wrestling was. And again, I made an emphasis to it earlier. But growing up without cable, uh, SmackDown was my go-to show as opposed to Monday Night Raw. Yeah. Yeah, and, and right now you can still watch SmackDown on, on uh, Fox. And, but, you know, it's interesting. This is also, week also is the last week that WWE is just owned by Vince McMahon. And I now it's owned by another terrible company. So, like... <laughs> Um, do you have any opinions on that? Like seeing uh, like this conglomerate, this behemoth in this industry now consumed by an even bigger behemoth? The moral of the story is that capitalism will continue to evolve. Mm-hmm. I always suspected that it would be Disney that bought out mm-hmm. WWE. But it seems like, as stated before, uh, this new merge between UFC and WWE, now known as quote-unquote TKO, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. We'll, we'll see what product they push out. I'm concerned that we're probably going to see lots of layoffs coming in the near future between wrestling talent, MMA talent, in addition to office staff. And again, a lot of it comes back to the basis of profit. Well, so when did you decide to take the leap from 
watching <laughs> professional wrestling to like learning to become a wrestler? Was there what? Did there something in, in you say I want to be like that, and then you go into a class? No, not necessarily. So I have a very untraditional path that, in terms of how I got into independent professional wrestling. So at this point, it was a little over two years ago, August of 2021. We were finally out of the height of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the Renegade Wrestling Alliance, a local independent wrestling organization, was hosting their first show since 2020, Return of the Renegades at Mount Pleasant Little League. Mount Pleasant is a neighborhood that I proudly represent. And one of my friends was a wrestler on the roster. And he knew that I was a wrestling fan. And said, hey, you should get in contact with the promoter. Let's see if we can get you involved in any way, shape, or form. So the promoter and I got in contact. And we were going to do the usual shtick where I would come out as the local and friendly politician. Really just wave at everyone. Thank them for coming out. And just letting them know we were in for an exciting night of professional wrestling. And so I walk in there that Saturday afternoon with the expectation that that's what I would be doing. And the promoter and I continued talking and getting to know each other in that moment. And he realized, like, this guy's an actual wrestling fan. Because I was using, quote-unquote, insider terms, like Mm -hmm. smart, kayfabe. And he quickly realized he understands the business. And so he asked me, would you be willing to take a body slam from our world champion, Kellen Dariah Thomas, who was their top heel? And I said, as long as y'all teach me how to do it safely, I'm more than happy to. And so we did two practice body slams, and then sure enough, Right before the show went, in, it went into intermission, I got body slammed in order to set up the main event. And the rest is history because following that body slam, uh, the organization ended up receiving a lot more likes on Facebook after that interaction. So mm-hmm. they asked if I'd be willing to come back on an ongoing basis. And ever since then, I've been part of the RWA family. So do you think that more professional wrestling organizations should be body slamming professional wrestlers? <laughs> Absolutely, they should, should be body slamming for politicians. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Uh, so, with with that in mind, like you you've been doing it involved there for a couple years, getting involved. What have you learned from professional wrestling that maybe has helped you become a better political figure? I think definitely engagement with the crowd, engagement with your audience, engagement with constituencies. Mm-hmm. It's just more and more opportunities to engage in. In different ways, shapes, and forms. I often took pride after being elected to host monthly community meetings. But I realized that going through the process as a professional wrestling manager, a professional wrestler where I play a bad guy, I grew thicker skin. Because again, I walked into all my monthly community meetings wanting to provide policy updates, share ideas, receive feedback, and you know, look for the positive aspects of what we can do in terms of community engagement. As a bad guy in professional wrestling, I often get booed. Mm-hmm. But that's my job as the bad guy. So I'm not supposed to necessarily get my feelings hurt per se. Mm-hmm. But I think through those experiences of like actually getting booed by people who are so engaged in the product that they're watching outside of the ring, in my job as a legislator, in my job as a community advocate, I felt like I had stronger skin to endure criticism, stronger skin to be able to have difficult conversations with different constituents. Now, did you you weren't a heel or a bad guy from the first, right? Like that you became a bad guy. That is that correct. something so you wanted evolved. to do? Was was so that I your started so when I came out as again the good guy politician, over time I started getting booed naturally. Mm. I don't know if it was my delivery, if it was my <laughs> smile, but it was unintentional. And so I made the creative decision to tell the promoter, 
I should just be a heel at this point. There is no need to force this good guy image. Do not worry. It will not harm my next campaign. I'm more than happy to be a bad guy. And so we set it up where I went around organizing a fake petition that ultimately gave me direct and full control of the Renegade Wrestling Alliance as their commissioner. And so I've probably served as their commissioner, and then that took life in of itself, where I then <laughs> bended the rules to become a wrestler and ultimately become the reigning and defending hype champion. That That's such a cool story that I think makes sense. Um, but, you, you know, you mentioned kayfabe, and for people who don't know, that's like, you are going to pretend it's, like, legit in this way. We have our own lingo backstage. Um, and so, you know, how the wrestlers interact when the fans aren't around or making people stay in the act. How do you keep kayfabe? Have you noticed keeping kayfabe as a politician? You know, the language politicians use um, when they're in front of constituents versus otherwise. Is that kind of, you know, educated you a bit uh, on that end? Yes, I mean, I think that's, again, one of the beauties is within wrestling, golden rule is you always maintain kayfabe no mm-hmm. matter what. So even after the shows, I will still be arrogant. If I always ask people, hey, did you enjoy the show? Well, you're welcome because I'm the one that made it possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the realm of politics, though, to be honest, I think my golden rule is to not necessarily feel like I have to be in quote-unquote kayfabe. Mm-hmm. And just feel that need to be myself, whether I'm speaking on the House floor, whether I'm having conversations with my fellow legislators, and then most importantly with my constituents. So in other words, like really being able to call it for what it is, because what I've quickly seen and realized, and this is one of the main reasons why young people feel so disillusioned by politics, is everyone feels convinced that our local, state, and federal politicians are all playing kayfabe. Mm-hmm. And that's the issue, is they're all trying to stay in character. Mm-hmm. And I think the best way to demonstrate to your constituencies that you're not playing a character is by being able to just truly be yourself, even if that involves using slang from time to time. Yeah, you know, um, uh, you were you were born right around when Steve Austin became a big deal. It's Stone Cold Steve Austin in WWE, WWF. You mentioned The Rock, and both of them and other characters have explained that they were just their uh, their own personality or an aspect of their personality turned up to eleven. Like Steve Austin is that guy. Um, maybe not to that level, but he's that way to perform in front of 20,000 people. Is that how you viewed it? And do you think that is a lesson to other politicians? Like, be yourself at a grander level, and then you don't have to pretend to be someone else. Exactly. No, be yourself, but most importantly, believe in the values Mm -hmm. you're putting forward. If you actually believe in that policy, whether it's through lived experience, whether it's through research, or a story you heard from your constituencies, be prepared to puff up your chest and talk about those issues and why they're so important. Yeah. And that's how people identify authenticity, especially within the media as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, my favorite, one of my favorite wrestlers is uh, Mick Foley, another noted uh, progressive wrestler. And so I like him a lot anyway. Um, I have a picture of him from years ago, and he um, had said when he was going to be a bad guy, like you have been, a heel, um, he said, if you're going to do, do this role, you have to believe in what you're saying. You can't to be effective to be really good at it. Uh, do you think, how important is that to both your roles in terms of being an elected official and being a professional wrestler, like actually believing what's coming out of your mouth? Exactly. Well, as I said before, if you do not believe in what you are saying, and what you're pushing forward as your values or the legislation you're trying to advance, people will be able to see right through it. Mm -hmm. Again, whether that is 
a constituent, whether that is an advocacy organization or even the media in of itself. And so to be able to like maintain that level of authenticity requires you to, again, feel strongly about the values that you're putting forward. In terms of how I feel in the ring and maintaining that level of passion, again, one has to put themselves into that mindset of what would this bad guy do? And how can I put myself into that mentality that I believe everything I'm going to say because that's the only way the crowd's going to believe it. And that's, again, the beauty of professional wrestling is a lot of the characters that we see, whether it's on TV or within the independent promotions, the most successful ones are the ones, as noted, who are able to take a part of themselves and turn it up times 100. And that's exactly who I portray as the commissioner, as the hype champion, as someone who feels like just very excited to be in front of the crowd and engage, but also has a sheer sense of arrogance that he wants you to feel. So in 10 years, right now, I just got my WrestleMania 40 tickets. It's me in Philadelphia. My friend's going to come to visit. We haven't, um, I haven't seen him too often from Pittsburgh, so we're going to get together to see it. But 10 years from now, it'll be WrestleMania 50. If you could have a, I know, a long time, um, but if it were up to you, you could have either goal. You could either be the governor or senator of Rhode Island, or you could be in the main event of WrestleMania 50 in 10 years. One of those two things in 10 years. Which one would David Morales want to do? In terms of social and public change that could be made, I would definitely have to say higher office within the state of Rhode Island. <laughs> that's the right answer. That's probably the right heel answer, too, right? Like that's, <laughs> that works for your heel character. But, <laughs> Now that you've witnessed power, you've witnessed what government can do at, at, at your level as, as a state legislator. Um, if you had the power to be the governor, not that you have any, I don't really have any feelings about the Rhode Island governor um, because I'm in Pennsylvania, but if you had that kind of power, what kind of things would you want to do if you could have more control and, and get what you want um, passed policy-wise? So as a governor, my budget proposals would look vastly different than what we've had in the past. Mm -hmm. I would invest heavily into our social benefit programs and not be fully reliant on the federal government in terms of Medicaid investments between reimbursement rates in addition to eligibility levels, similarly looking at food stamps as well. More often than not, we're very dependent on the federal government and their support when it comes to the amount of food stamps or the resources and services that Medicaid recipients receive. I think it's dependent on the state to also make those investments. At the same time, public housing. Mm -hmm. We have the Fair Cloth Amendment at the federal level that prevents us and caps us at the amount of public housing that we can develop. But the matter of the fact is, Rhode Island is eligible for over 700 additional units of public housing development that we just have not taken advantage of. So I would develop a plan with our public housing authorities and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to sit down and understand how can we maximize dense public housing to ensure that people who are income eligible have access to quality housing that's safe and free of lead hazards or any other safety concerns. And at the same time, start working on a transitional wraparound service plan for our unhoused population. We have an unhoused population across Rhode Island that continues to grow year after year. A lot of it having to do with the rising cost of living. Mm -hmm. How can we develop in the immediate pallet shelters just to ensure that there is individualized housing for each unhoused resident while being able to provide counseling services and ultimately put them in a position where they feel quote-unquote back on their feet. So between housing and social benefit programs, those would definitely be some of the budgetary items that I would prioritize. 
while also taking a closer evaluation look at our criminal legal system. Uh, right now, we have situations where we have had a multitude of incidents inside of our adult corrections units where folks have either been in solitary confinement for weeks at a time, some have committed suicide, and a lot of that has to do with, again, the lack of attention that's being paid to in terms of the conditions that inmates have to live through. So that would be something I would take a deeper analysis at, have those conversations with the Department of Corrections. So there's definitely a lot of power that would come from an executive position between being the governor or the mayor. And I feel like more often than not, it's not exercised to its fullest extent, especially when we're looking at the issues that, again, are affecting working people on a daily basis. Yeah, that reminds me. I've talked to Democrats, like I said, in Hawaii, uh, Rhode Island, a few other Democratic states. And sometimes they'll say that we as a party, whether it's the elected officials or the people on the ground, maybe take the state or maybe the city for granted because, well, we're going to elect Democrats anyway. And the Democrats themselves, to them, feel not as bold, maybe too timid in, in terms of getting things done. You're younger. You, you got into office even younger than you are now. Um, was that something you noticed? Is that something you're trying to address? Like, hey, we this is a Dem this is a blue state. This is a democratic state. There's no reason we should be pretending like we're um, something else. You look at Minnesota; they have a one seat majority, and they've passed a democratic dream uh, policies. Right. So, is that something you've noticed that maybe people could take that majority for granted? You're absolutely correct. I think Minnesota is a perfect example of being able to have a quote-unquote slim majority, but govern as if they were already a solid blue state, or what you would envision a solid blue state to look like mm -hmm. in terms of investments and initiatives. And it's disappointing, because as stated before, Rhode Island is predominantly Democrat, specifically when you look at the trifecta we have between the multi multiple branches in government, within the legislature, within the governor's office, within our executive branches, all Democrats. And so the fact that we just started the school year and we still have kids in our communities that don't have access to free lunch, it's unbelievable. Yeah. There are certain initiatives that I would argue are core democratic principles that we should be investing in, we should be advocating for. But a lot of it has to do with complacency because, as stated before, there are moments where members of our party take it for granted. We take our positions for granted. We don't always advocate. And that has been one of the main issues with our local Democratic Party. I think more often than not, it's a large umbrella. It's a large umbrella between more conservative Democrats, between more moderate, between more progressive Democrats. But I would like to think that at the bare minimum, we can come to a consensus around the basic Democratic principles around public education, decent wages for working people, really focus on the pillars that are the main drivers as to why people vote Democrat in the first place. You know, when it, whether it's Minnesota or professional wrestling, a big reason why you see a lot of the success is because of competition. You know, you, whether it's a competition from the ring or it's competition at the polling place, it seems to bring out some of the best from people, the drive to get things done. Do you think that's important in politics, even if you have a very democratic state? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's always important to be able to have some level of Again, competition between a more progressive caucus versus a more quote-unquote moderate caucus. I think those pressures are needed, and we often see that exercise during budgetary hearings. Mm -hmm. One thing I was very proud of is some of the more progressive members of the state legislature advocated strongly to the Speaker of the House, to the Senate President, to the Governor's Office about the need 
about the need to fully fund our Department of Human Services because, unfortunately, we are in a crisis right now where if you call DHS to inquire about your social benefit programs, you're on the phone for over two hours at a time. And that has to do with the lack of staff, lack mm-hmm. of staffing within that department. And so the fact that there was, help, there was healthy contention within the budget on whether or not DHS was going to be fully funded, that was a conversation that needed to happen. And ultimately, we were able to ensure that DHS is fully funded. Now, the matter of the executive branch actually acting on that and filling those positions is a whole different discussion. Mm-hmm. But the matter of the fact is that we were able to have those more firm conversations between what are our priorities within this budget mm-hmm. and why is human services being left behind. Yeah, because if you can fund the services and have them working adequately, in the end, people might need them less because they're able to be pulled out sooner as opposed to being driven down further. It's a radical concept to some. <laughs> I, I, I work at a nonprofit and we employ a lot of social workers. And I always think like if government just employed a lot more social workers, we'd probably be a lot better off because people would just get the benefits that already exist. I cannot agree with you anymore, especially when we talk about housing. We had more housing navigators. We had more folks to help out with SNAP benefits. Again, more people in our community would have the resources they need instead of just going stressed out. Yeah, so it's, it seems like one of the most radical things you can do with government is not some grand new policy, but just making things work better that exist already. Accessibility. Accessibility is the name of the game, and it's why I often talk about the fact that we need to simplify the application process. Mm-hmm. Anytime we develop new programs to benefit, again, people living in poverty, small businesses in need, oftentimes they're inaccessible. And the people who need to receive access to those programs don't receive it. And then a year later, the government comes back and says, oh, look, we have a surplus. Even though that surplus essentially just represents all of the funding and resources that we're not taking advantage of. Yeah. Well, let's take advantage of what you've done because you've run for office and you've won. What, tell me why, in a, in a couple sentences, why you would encourage, especially other young people, to make the decision to run for office too. Because your lived experience is absolutely valuable. And especially during these contemporary times where we are facing an economic crisis where the cost of living continues to escalate. And more often than not, our local and federal officials do not look like us or reflect our experiences. We need to ensure that our voices are at that table. But going even further than that, by running, we can ensure that we're able to exercise that voice through votes, through the introduction of bills or ordinances. And that's how you're able to shape priorities. That's how you're able to shape the public narrative as to how your government functions. So two last questions. One, can you name one or two of your favorite matches of all time? Because i got to ask, when am I going to get a chance to? Yes. Sami Zayn versus Shinsuke Nakamura, NXT TakeOver 2016. It is a hidden gem I recommend to everyone. I met Nakamura at a Ring of Honor show back in 2016, I think. 2015 or 2015 here in Philadelphia. So I have a good picture of me with him, I'll send to you. So, big fan. Uh, and, and the next one would have to be CM Punk versus John Cena, Money in the Bank 2011. Between the crowd, between the ending and the finale of the show, it just doesn't compare. No, it's it's a five-star match for a good reason. That when you get the fans into it, and just like you're doing with your promos, just like you're doing the legislature, that's what it is. It's about getting people invested in it. If people want to be invested in you, David, if they want to learn more about you and follow you, like they were following CM Punk, like they're following Sami Zayn, 
what's the best way they can follow you online? Absolutely. So I am on all social media platforms between Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and my user handle name is the same, at David Morales R.I. That is very easy to remember and spell and find. David, thanks so much, and I wish you the best of luck, though hopefully, because you're a heel, someone is going to power bomb you and pin you one to three. <laughs> that is their goal, but it will not happen. I can assure you of that, Tony. But thank you again so much for having me. Thank you. Hopefully, listen, hopefully you'll find David in the rig. He'll find him in the legislature. Maybe you should run for office, too. Thank you, and best of luck.